Thank you for the invitation to preach to you this morning. I bring you greetings from GraceNet Community Church in Wellington. I uh, understand Jerry um, from our church was here with you last week. So it's good to be with you here this week while John and, sorry, John and, <laughs> what's his name? Jono. We, we have a, we have a John and in our church and I just constantly get the two switch while Jono and Lauren, that must be the Lauren, yeah, John and Lauren, that's the combi combined name, um, while they are on, on vacation. Um, if I could get you to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians 3, verses 19 to 23, um, that will be the text uh, that we will be looking at this morning. Um, I'll give you a bit of a background on the book of Galatians. I've been preaching through it over a number of years now. So I'm, I'm up to this point in the book in chapter three. That's why we're starting in what will be quite a strange place for you. But I'll do my best to sort of bring you up to speed in terms of what has gone before and why Paul is therefore making this particular argument at, at this point in chapter three. So chapter three, Galatians three, verses 19 to 23. I'm reading from the ESV. Verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So if you bow your heads, let's just pray quickly and then we'll, we'll get into it. Lord, as we come now to, to study your word, we ask that you be with us, that you help us to receive food from your holy word, that you plant your truth deeply in us. And that through the working of your spirit, the light of Christ might be seen in our lives um, as we go about our business day to day. Build in us acts of love, Lord. Build in us deeds of faith so that we may glorify you as you have glorified yourself in your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So the book of Galatians, firstly, just by way of background. Um, Galatians is quite... Uh, stern or um, harsh rebuke to the Galatian believers as far as Paul's letters to the various churches go. And Paul is very angry with them because he has heard in his absence that a gospel which he calls no gospel at all, different from the one that he preached to them, has sprung up there in his absence. Galatia, if we were to look on a map of the world today, would be south-central Turkey. Now, Paul, on his missionary journeys, had planted a number of churches there, and then because of opposition um, that had sprung up against him, he had been forced to flee, as was often the case when, when he preached the gospel in, in various towns. And having left, Paul is now hearing reports that the churches he planted there, having, planted the, having preached the gospel, having seen a response to the gospel, and churches established, he's now hearing that the churches are being led astray. Um, and Paul is very angry with, with the people he feels are doing this leading astray. They're variously called the, the Judaizers or the party of the circumcision because they were teaching that not only do you need to believe in Jesus Christ 
and the gospel, but you also need to do the works of the law of Moses. You need to do circumcision. You need to keep all aspects of the law in order to be saved. And Paul says this, this contradicts the gospel that he preached very clearly to them. Now, prior to our text in chapter 3 in Galatians, Paul has basically been making this argument over and over again as to why the gospel he preached is the valid one and why he is a valid apostle because they're trying to discredit his gospel on the basis that he's not really a true apostle. So in in chapters 1 and 2, we've seen Paul argue that the gospel is not the ABC of Christianity. It's not the beginning. It's actually the A to Z, the all in all of our Christianity. And Paul demonstrates this by describing his own personal experience, how he went from being the worst of sinners as a, as a Pharisee to being a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And how the Judean church had, had marveled that he who used to persecute them is now preaching the very same faith that he had been seeking to destroy. Paul also tells the story of how both himself and the gospel that he had be, he is preaching had been endorsed by the other apostles in Jerusalem. He talked about the journey he went, uh, the visit he made to Jerusalem with Titus. He deliberately took Titus with him because Titus was not a Jew. He was Greek and he wasn't circumcised. And he took Titus with him to Jerusalem and was fully accepted by the apostles there. And they endorsed the gospel that he had been preaching in, in front of these other false teachers who were, who were making the arguments about the need to, to also add the law to the gospel. At the beginning of chapter 3, you see Paul berating the Galatian believers as being foolish, as being disobedient, for abandoning the true faith, for this heresy of works-based righteousness. We see, O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh. So Paul strongly refutes legalism all the way through the book of Galatians. And he's, he's always saying, you know, a supplemented Christ, Christ supplemented is actually, a, is, is actually Christ supplanted or Christ set aside in the life of the believer. Further in, in chapter 3, Paul then shows the Galatians or reminds the Galatians of the true gospel from the Old Testament, we can see that in Galatians 3 verses 6 to 9, where he underscores in the life of Abraham the three key concepts of the gospel, the belief, the saving faith that Abraham had, the righteousness that was granted because of the saving faith, and the blessing that was promised to Abraham, which is ultimately the blessing we received in Christ. Um, and later in Galatians three ten to 14, we see Paul then starting to contrast the difference between the gospel and the law. And we see a number of contrasting um, concepts or terms juxtaposed by, by Paul. We see blessings attached to the gospel versus the curses that are attached to the law. We see the faith that's part of the gospel versus the works that are part of the law. We see the life that is through the gospel versus the death that comes from the law. The righteousness because of the gospel versus the sinfulness that is revealed because of the law. The justification that is available under the gospel versus the condemnation that is, that is all that can be had under the law. Heaven versus hell. Righteousness versus 
unrighteousness. Paul is, does this to demonstrate that it is by the gospel that the righteous shall live by faith. While counterfactually it's under the law, the unrighteous can only die by their works. He says all who rely on works of the law or, or their obedience are under a curse. Paul also shows in these preceding verses in, in Galatians 3 how it is through the promises of Abraham how they are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it is the promises that God gives Abraham that give salvation rather than the law that was given to Moses. Galatians 3.8 And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying in you shall all the nations be blessed. So our text for today continues on in this argument of law and gospel, gospel and law um, that Paul has been making in chapter 3. And it's almost as if having got this far, going it's not the law, it's the gospel, it's not the law, it's the gospel, it's not the law, it's the gospel. You could be forgiven for almost asking then, what is the law for? Why was the law given? Um, you can almost hear the Judaizers responding to Paul at this point, going, Paul, hang on a sec. Isn't the, isn't the same God who gave the promise to Abraham the same God who gave the law to Moses? It's, it's from the same place. And if God is therefore the author of both the promise to Abraham and the law to Moses, surely he then had a valid purpose for the law. Or you can almost hear them accusing Paul of, of blasphemy, much like the Jews from Asia we can read about in Acts 21 28, who, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law. That's the kind of accusation Paul is constantly having to respond to. So it's unsurprising then in our text, in Galatians 3, verse 19, Paul leads off with this exact question. Why then? The law. I've been telling you it's gospel, not law. It's gospel, not law. Why then the law? Yes, it's a fair question. So our passage today, we will see Paul explain the true or the main function of God's law in relation to the promise he gave Abraham, in relation to the gospel that he preached beforehand to Abraham, as we saw earlier in chapter 3. And he does this by asking and then answering two specific questions. So we'll structure our, our sum of the sermon today around those two questions. Question one in verse 19, and then question two in verse 21. So starting with question one, verse 19, why then the law? Now, in case you're wondering what he means by the law, um, the law of God is, is defined by the, a number of the Reformed confessions in, in a similar way. I'll read you the 1689 version because it's probably the one I'm most familiar with. It, it defines the law of God as a law of universal obedience written in Adam's heart. This same law continued to be the perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. So besides this law, which is commonly called the moral law, God was also then pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial and civil laws, basically the Mosaic law, the Old Testament laws, which he gave to Moses in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which lay out how Israel was to relate to God and how Israel was to live as his people. So basically the, the covenant of works, if you like, the, the um, moral 
the moral and ceremonial and civil laws. This is the law that Paul has been arguing does not need to be added to the gospel in order for salvation. And so the question is, well, what is this law for then? It came from God. He must have had a purpose for it. If it's not for salvation, what is the function of the law? And Paul then answers the question in verse 19 in saying the main function of the law is it was added because of transgressions. Now, transgressions literally is defined as stepping across the line. So it's, there's a line there and you have transgressed. You have stepped over the line. Um, Paul in Romans 7, 7 is helpful in terms of understanding what it was added because of transgression means. What shall we then say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So again, Romans 3.20, Paul explains further. For by the works of the law, no human being has been justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. The law's main purpose, Paul is saying, is actually to expose sin. It is not so that you can earn righteousness and make God happy with you. The law was given to expose the sin of man. It is the law that turns sin into transgression by showing sin for what it truly is, a breach of the holy law of God. In other words, why then the law? It was added to make wrongdoing, to make sin a legal offense before God. The law, in other words, makes plain the sinfulness of sin and shows that it is a, a, a revolt or um, a going against the authority of God. Now, this obviously applies equally for us today. Um, the law does not tell us as a, how to go about getting salvation. It, it's there to tell us about our sin. It shows us the problems that we have. It shows us not only the problems that we have, but also that we are lawbreakers, and therefore that we cannot be the solution to our problem in terms of our separation or our need for, for a savior. Um, now, while this is the main purpose of the law, as per Paul's argument, it, it's not to say it is the only purpose of the law. And I, I want to stress that. We'll come back to the other purposes of the law a little bit, but I'll just say a little bit on that now. Um, you may have heard John Calvin talk about the threefold use of the law. Uh, Calvin's first use of the law is also the main purpose of the law, which we have just seen. The law he describes as being a mirror. You stand in front of the law and it reflects and mirrors God's perfect righteousness to you, which then shows you how little you line up to God's perfect standard. It illuminates for you your self sinfulness. Um, he says, Calvin, the law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered, and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace. The other two uses of the law Calvin has are uh, the restraint of evil, which is kind of a, a civil, uh, sorry, a common grace use of the law in that it restrains evil. It allows for a limited measure of justice on the earth until the last judgment is realized at the time of, of Jesus' second coming. The third use of the law, which we'll look at a little bit later, 
is is common sometimes called the rule of life for believers. Um, but let's continue on the question one. Let's continue with the main purpose, and we'll come back to the third use of the law at the end. So just to, to recap, um, verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So it's almost like an echo of, of earlier verses in Galatians 3, uh, verses 6 to 9. And scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham by way of the promise, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So the law was there to reveal to us our sin, to reveal to us our need for the promised offspring, ultimately Jesus Christ, who would deliver on the promise that God had made to Abraham through faith. Um, the rest of verse 19 and 20 as, as part of question one are a little bit cryptic. I had a look at a number of commentaries on this and they were all unanimous in going these texts are difficult they're quite hard to understand but i think if we look at them in the context of the the whole of, of chapter three we can basically see them as a, a continuation of our, paul's argument of the gospel versus the law i'll just read them to you and then I'll, I'll have a crack at explaining them quickly before we move on to question two so the rest of verse 19 and 20 say and it the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So, breaking it down into pieces, the angels, um, in connection with the giving of the law, um, accord well with what we see elsewhere in the Bible, in Deuteronomy, in the Psalms, particularly Acts 7, um, verse 53, says the law was delivered by angels, and Hebrews 2, 2, says the message declared by angels provide proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution so the first part of that passage is going the mosaic law was put in place through angels that seems to be borne out by scripture by an intermediary and the commentators were unanimous in that the intermediary is moses who received the law received the 10 commandments um, from the angels at at mount sinai so God is noting here that um, the law was given to Israel through angels, through Moses, to the people. It did not come directly. Whereas we know that the promise that was given to Abraham came directly from God to Abraham. So again, you see that contrast of the gospel came direct, the law came indirectly through intermediaries. And it's also probably true that Paul is arguing that the promise is universal in its effect. It applies to both Jew and Gentiles, whereas the law, particularly the ceremonial and other aspects of the law that were given to Moses, were for Israel only. We can see a little bit of that in Romans 3, 29, 30. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. We see the same phrase there about God being one in connection with the promise to Abraham being for both Jew and Gentiles. So it's almost like Paul going, the promise is better than the law. A bit like Hebrews 7.22, where he describes Jesus Christ as the guarantor of a better covenant than the, the covenant with, with Moses. But as I said, it's a little bit cryptic. It doesn't 
we, he could have said, if that was what he was trying to say, he could have said it in a much clearer way, was probably the conclusion I was left with. But it seems to be the spirit of the passage up until this point. And it doesn't really take away from the answer to the first question. The main purpose of the law is still to reveal our sin. Anyway, let's move on to question two. So remember, we're looking at Paul's answers to these two questions. Question one, what is the main purpose of the law? It is there to reveal transgression. It is there to reveal our sinfulness to us. The second question is, is subtly different. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Now, if the first question could be seen as coming from the Judaizers to Paul, Paul is almost turning their question around and going, that's not the question. This is the question. And then posing this question back to them. Are you saying, Judaizers, that the law is contrary to the promises of God? Um, Paul is, is almost challenging them to going, I'm not the contradiction here, guys. You are the contradiction. And he answers this question emphatically for them. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So Paul is making it clear that it is they and not him who are, who are, who are making the law or trying to make the law contradictory to the gospel, to the promises of God to Abraham. Because it's the Judaizers who are teaching that keep the law and you shall gain life. Paul is asserting that no, that's not true. Law-based works righteousness is actually what is opposed to the promises of God. Um, clearly, no such law has been given. So Paul says, hypothetically, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be by that law. But no such law has been given. I mean, this is, this is evident from, from a lot of scripture. Psalm 14.2, for example, the law looked down from heaven on the children of man to see if there were any who understand, any who seek after God. But they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. No one is capable of achieving righteousness by the law. Not Adam, who failed against the moral law in the garden, not the kingdom of Israel, who failed miserably and were <coughs> punished and disbanded for their disobedience to the covenant. Excuse me. Um, Hosea 6 7 says of Israel, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. The Jews and the Judaizers were not righteous under the law. We see the martyr Stephen accusing them in, in Acts 7.53. You who received the law as delivered by angels. So going back to the, the law at Mount Sinai. Did not keep it. Um, verse 22 goes on that this is, you know, the question is hypothetical. There is no such law. And because of that, scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those believe to sorry to those who believe. So the question in verse twenty one, Paul is showing that it, the main purpose of the law is exactly what I said it was. It was never intended to impart life; otherwise, we would be able to become righteous through it. Instead, the law was given to imprison everything under sin, so that the promise may come, so that the promise may be fulfilled in the perfect law keeper in Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
the Greek Paul used in terms of the scripture declares the whole world to be a prisoner of sin um, is literally scripture imprisoned all the world to sin. It's probably an interesting way to think about the Old Testament. I've, I certainly hadn't come at it that way before. What's the Old Testament for? It's to imprison the world in sin is a, is a different way to think about the Bible. But I think what it means is the, the promise is, sorry, the law is there to enable the promise to come. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was very useful in explaining <clears throat> probably what Paul is meaning here. It's quite a long quote, but it's, it's a really beautiful one. Um, so bear with me. It is only when one submits to the law that one can speak of grace. I don't think it is Christian to want to get to the New Testament too soon and too directly. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. Is this not why the gospel is so unappreciated today? That some ignore it, others ridicule it? So in our modern evangelism, we are casting our pearls, the costliest pearl being the gospel, before swine. People cannot see the beauty of the gospel because they have no conception of the filth of the pigsty. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of night, or sorry, of the night sky, that the stars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Jesus Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we, be, will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. I, I found that really helpful. There you see the main purpose of the law is to enable the working of the gospel. Um, and again, you see those contrasts of law associated with death and despair and condemnation and judgment, whereas it is through the gospel that you get life and heaven and, and freedom and Christ. So, to wrap up those two questions, hopefully now we're clear on what is the main purpose of the law. It's not to show us that we fall a little bit short of what God wants and therefore need to put in some extra work to meet his standard. It shows us that we are trapped, we are helpless, we are imprisoned under the power of sin because we cannot meet the demands of the law. And through the unrighteousness that we, the law reveals to us, we then turn to the gospel as the power of, of righteousness. Luther put it this way, the principal point of the law is to make men not better, but worse. <coughs> Excuse me. That is to say, it shows them their sin, that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace, and so to come to that blessed seed, Jesus Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Right. Well, let's let's just look at how we can apply um, some of these truths to ourselves. I think, firstly, if you are not yet a Christian and you're with us today, then the main purpose of the law will be very useful for you <coughs> because it will enable you to see maybe for the first time who you really are compared to the standard of what God says is good and right and holy. So look at the law and look at your life. Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever lied? Have you ever failed to love your neighbor as you love yourself, as it were? <coughs> and if you have done any of those things, even once, then know that the penalty for breaking God's law is the curse of the law. It is death and it is judgment before a holy God who hates sin so much that he was prepared to crush his only son, Jesus Christ, when he saw our sin imputed to Jesus. Um, we read it in the Bible. For, God, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who, know, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. We might have the blessing promised to Abraham, the peace with God, the unmerited favor of God through faith. This is the wondrous love of God. This is the amazing grace of the gospel. If you're a believer today, what does, what does this main purpose of the law mean to you? I think firstly it, it means let's stop <coughs> trying in and of ourselves to mend our ways, to do religious duties, to clean up our lives ourselves and make ourselves acceptable to God. God will not love us <coughs> more because we have, we have done things ourselves um, to make us look good. The Christian life isn't about self-help. It's not a doctrine of self-help. Paul says it in, in earlier in, in Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Heaven forbid. Certainly not, as, as Paul would say. Now, this is not to say that having embraced the promise, we can therefore forget all about the law either. Absolutely not on, on that one, as, as Paul would say. Um, let's just stop seeing God's law as a, as a system of salvation. Our salvation is not a combination of faith in Christ plus our good works. Salvation comes by faith alone. Salvation and justification come through God's grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. So as we look in the face of the law, in the mirror of the law, let it, believers, let it reveal to us our sin. Let it show us the myriad of ways we fall short of the law's demands. And upon seeing our sinfulness afresh, just as we did when we were converted, let us continue to look to Christ for our sanctification. We are being made holier by fleeing to Christ, who, is, who by the indwelling power of his Holy Spirit produces good fruit within us. John Murray explained it this way. It is imperative that we realize our complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit. We must not forget, of course, that our activity is enlisted to the fullest extent in the process of sanctification. But we must not rely upon our own strength or resolution of purpose. It is when we are weak that we are strong. 
It is by grace that we are being saved, as surely as by grace we have been saved. Our union with Christ by the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit produces our obedience. But having emphasized this main use of the law, let us not ignore what Calvin's third use of the law, this rule for life. Paul himself talks about the importance of the the law as as a, a guide for the Christian life. Later on in Galatians, we see it um, starting in in chapter five, where he talks about how faith must work through love and how loving your neighbor is to fulfill the law. In in Galatians five fourteen, one commentator explained it this way, and I found this really helpful. He said, "The law, in its third use, is not the actual road upon we upon which we as Christians travel." but it is the guardrails on either side of the road. The road we travel upon is Christ. The guardrails keep us upon the road. The law shows us where the path of righteousness lies and keeps us traveling upon Christ. And I thought that was a really good way of doing it. We don't climb into heaven on our own strength. Christ is our staircase. Christ is our road. The law makes us see our shortcomings and remain firmly fixed on Christ and on his gospel. So keep looking into that mirror. Keep seeing your sin and keep fleeing to Christ in faith, both for your justification and for your sanctification, for your conversion and for your Christian life. Flee to Christ that he may save you from the curse of the law and cause you to walk in God's statutes through the indwelling and sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.